In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. We will continue our reflections on Psalm 89. This psalm is written by Ethan, and during the time in which they felt that God abandoned them, God left them. So we don't know exactly which time, whether the time in which the kingdom of Israel was split during Rehoboam, or maybe during the time of captivity, Babylonian captivity, or other time. But in this time, the Israelites felt that God abandoned them. This psalm is 52 verses. From verse 1 to 37, Ethan, the author of the psalm, is speaking about the mercies of God and about the righteousness of God and about the justice of God. So, the first 37 verses of this psalm covered the confidence in God's incomparable greatness and in his covenant to David. Starting from verse 38, he starts to address the war that he is going through. And I call it a war because his faith was not shaken. The last verse in this psalm, he blessed God. Blessed be the Lord forevermore. Amen and Amen. Which means his faith was not shaken. But he was attacked by doubts from Satan. And the best way to handle the attacks when Satan starts to cast doubts in our heart against God, the best thing is to bring it in prayer. To expose these thoughts in prayer before God. That's what he is doing here. But after 37 verses in which he spoke about the mercies of God and his faithfulness, at least the first verse he is saying, I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. With my mouth will I make known your faithfulness to all generations. So I want to emphasize again and again, when we read the verses from 38, although it has doubts, but he was exposing the warfare that was attacking his mind, but his faith was not shaken in God. Verse 38, after he mentioned all the promises of God and his confidence in the promises of God, now he is saying to God, but you have cast off and abhorred, you have been furious with your anointed. Your anointed can refer to David or to our Lord Jesus Christ. David and his descendants, the kings of Israel, or Jesus Christ. By the way, the word Christ means the anointed one. St. Augustine, in his commentary on this psalm, the word anointed usually, usually he applies to the Lord Jesus Christ. But you have cast off and abhorred. You have been furious with your anointed. You have renounced the covenant of your servant. You have profaned his crown 
by casting it to the ground. So here in verse 38, the tone suddenly shifted. As the psalmist considered the present, the contemporary crisis, which seemed to be all the worse when contrasted with his understanding of God's greatness and faithfulness to the covenant with David. So he said, I know your covenant, I know your mercies, I know your faithfulness, but if I compare this with the crisis that we are going through right now, I cannot understand how you, you kept your covenant with David and his descendants. So the psalmist has drawn out God's promise in the fullest first 37 verses. And now he confronts God with it. These are your promises, but this is your, our condition. Then how can I reconcile your promises with our current condition? As if he is saying, God, you are omnipotent, faithful, unjust. You who has made this promise and confirmed it with the most solemn news. But now it seems to me like you have broken it. Sometimes when we go through difficult time, it's not easy thing for us to reconcile God's providences with his promises. And many times we ask, where are your promises, O Lord? But we should know that they are reconcilable, even if we don't know how to reconcile this. Because God's work fulfill his word and never contradict his word. Some punishment might have been expected according to verse 33, but not this total abandonment. In verse 32, Ethan understood that God may punish and discipline his people, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with his stripes. So, as if he is saying, I know, sometimes you punish us, but what we are going through right now is beyond the punishment. It's total abandonment, as if you are furious with us. And the descendants of David felt or experienced the same fate like King Saul. King Saul, God took the kingdom from him. And at the time of Rahabam, only one tribe stayed with David, the tribe of Judah. All the tribes, the rest of the tribes composed the kingdom of Israel. So how you give us a promise that you will keep the kingdom of David forever, but now during the time of Rahabam, the grandson of David, the kingdom is split. So, as if the psalmist is saying to God, I am attacked with that your promises are not true. I am attacked to accuse God with falsehood. But now, actually, because I trust you, I am taking all the freedom to bring all my worries, all my cares, all my anxieties, all my griefs 
into your bosom. I am telling you, Satan is attacking me with the thought of the falsehood of God. And I am actually bringing this to you. We don't know, as I said, the exact time in which the psalmist wrote this psalm. We don't know the crisis that prompted this desperate cry. As if the psalmist is saying, You have promised, O Lord, with an oath that the son of David would reign. But now we see the kingdom taken from the children of David. Only one tribe remained with him. To carry out your promise, then you need to send that son of David that you promised. Send this anointed one that actually will reign. The psalmist most probably was speaking about the literal kingdom of David, the earthly kingdom of David. But when God promised David that his seed will reign forever, he was speaking about Jesus Christ who came from the seed of David and his kingdom shall have no end. As Augustine explained that God delayed in sending the Messiah to deliver the people. It took from the fall of Adam until the coming of the Messiah 5,500 years. St. Ambrose explained the passage at the words of Christ himself, declaring that he has endured the shame and reproach and suffering of the cross and the mysterious abandonment thereon for the ransom of, of mankind. So, St. Jerome is saying, as if the son who carried the sins of the world and he became sin and became curse, as St. Paul mentioned, as if the son is saying to God the Father, but you have cast off and abhorred, you have been furious with your anointed, you have renounced the covenant of your servant. You have profaned his crown by casting it to the ground. The Jews have misunderstood what God meant and counted that literal covenant concerning the temporal kingdom of Israel in literal way, earthly kingdom. As I told you, we don't know when the psalm was written. Was it written during Absalom's successful rebellion against David? Or during Solomon's fall? Or during the captivity of Babylon? Or during the revolt under the son of Solomon, Rehoboam? Or during the destruction of the second temple? So we don't know, it can be also a prophecy about the destruction of the temple at year 70 AD and after which the Aaron worship vanished and also the throne of David was gone away. So we see in each event and all the working of a divine and providential purpose to tell us that this kingdom is not an earthly kingdom, but it is the kingdom of the Messiah, whose kingdom shall have no end.
Although there were peaceful times for the kingdom of Israel, for example, during Solomon, there was a peaceful splendor of Solomon's reign, and the commentator did not interpret the peaceful time of Solomon as fulfilling the promises of God, because they were looking for a king, a deliverer, who actually will deliver the nation of Israel, will deliver the whole world, that is the Messiah. Verse 39, you have renounced the covenant of your servant, you have profaned his crown by casting it to the ground. In the same sense, we understand verse 39 concerning the disannulling of the covenant. He says that God renounced the covenant of your servant, backed out from the promise he gave to his servant David, as if God backed out from the promise that the kingdom of David remained forever. But actually, when the anointed one, the Lord Jesus Christ, was upon the cross, it seems that as if God the Father has cast him off, but he did not renounce his covenant with him, because his covenant with the Son established forever, and the kingdom of Son shall have no end. That's why you see here, your, your servant is a capital. So as if he is saying, you have renounced the covenant of your servant, Jesus Christ. That's how it seems to us. You have profaned his crown by casting it to the ground. So again, as I said in the beginning, the psalmist does not charge God with inconstancy. He was inconstant. He only complains that those significant promises of which he had spoken seem to be vanished. Where is your covenant? Where are these promises? So Ethan's word here seems a shocking contradiction to what he wrote earlier in the psalm from verse 1 to 37, in which he demonstrated the full confidence of faith and the true report of his feeling. He knew that God did not renounce his covenant, but in the present crisis it feels like this, it feels like God renounced his covenant. Verse 14, you have broken down all his hedges, you have brought his strongholds to realm. So hedges means the walls or the defenses. When we have like a farm, we put hedge around it, fence around it, to protect the farm. So hedges here means everything they relied upon for safety. He complains that the kingdom was exposed as a prey to all passers-by. It's like a field or a garden or vineyard of which the walls were broken down and the ground laid open to robbery and ruin. That's why he said in verse 40, you have broken down all his hedges, all his protection. You have brought his stronghold to ruin. So he compared the Jewish people represented by David to vineyard, 
whose fences are broken down. This what we read in Isaiah chapter 5 and verse 5. I will take away its hinge and it shall be burned and break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I think of frequent occurrence to the Jews who were more than once conquered and despoiled by enemies when God withdrew his protection from them. So when God withdrew his protection from the Jews, their enemies conquered them and they were taken into captivity. For us, the believers, what is the hedge? The hedge, usually it is rough with thorns, so no one can jump over it. So the hedge in a spiritual sense is the repentance. Because repentance is the fence through which Satan cannot force its way. The hedge is our repentance. Verse 41 All who pass by the way plunder him. He is a reproach to his neighbors. When there is no such hedge, no protection, entrance is easy. And all who pass by the way plunder him and strip the vines bare of their grapes. This verse is true about Jesus Christ, who was stripped in his passion and he was made reproach. Actually, we read in the Gospels, the four Gospels, during the time of cross, everyone who passed by the cross reproached the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only the Jews who refused him to be their king, but even by the foreign tyrant Herod, the Roman soldiers who mocked him and insulted him. The Jews called the Lord Jesus Christ his aglatum and wine bibber. His miracles were done by help of Satan, that was what he said about Jesus Christ, and his doctrine was hard to say. Verse 42, you have exalted the right hand of his adversaries. You have made all his enemies rejoice. So here, not only God withdrew the protection, but also exalted their enemies. So we can see here, it is double. God withdrew the protection and exalted the enemies. So the psalmist continued to describe the difficulties into which the people fell when they were deserted by God and he proceeds to dwell on the increasing severity of God's judgment. How come? God did not only withdraw his aid from his anointed, leaving him weak, undefended, unprotected, but also he ascended the enemies of his people to obtain victory over them. Again, that is the perception of the psalmist, that how he felt that God is doing. So the psalmist says that God gives the enemies opportunity to accomplish their purposes. That's why the enemies, now they rejoice in the success of their plans, in their triumph over the anointed and over the people of God. You have exalted the right hand of his adversaries. As the wicked Jews and Satan and the principalities of Satan and the power at the time 
of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ at the time of death, actually they felt they defeated the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord told them, this is your hour and the power of darkness. And his enemies rejoiced. They rejoiced when they got the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross and after he was buried in the tomb. But also, this is true about the body of Christ. Who is the body of Christ? Us, the church, the believers. So when the, the believers are persecuted, the persecutors rejoice and they celebrate the torture of the martyrs. Verse 43, you have also turned back the edge of his sword and have not sustained him in the battle. What is the edge of the sword that was turned back? It means you have withdrawn your own help from him and the sword of the king and his weapons failed him. That what mean you turn it back the edge of the sword. But if we apply this verse about the Lord Jesus Christ, the sword of God is the word of God. So the edge of the sword is the word of God. And it seems at the time of the crucifixion that all his word, all the sermon, they are in vain. They bore no fruit. And his ministry, like a lost battle, his ministry as if it was defeated. With respect to the Jews, the edge of his sword was of little or no efficacy among them, as if they did not profit anything from his preaching. Verse 44, you have made his glory cease and cast his throne down to the ground. So the psalmist points to the king being deprived of that noble splendor and of his royal apparel. And again, during the time of crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ, when he was at the cross, as if his glory is seized and his throne was cast down to the ground. St. Augustine says, it means the spiritual rejection of the Jews who could not because they would not be cleansed from their sins by faith. So the glory of the Jewish nation and the throne of the Jewish nation ceased because they refused to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, they were punished by their throne, their holy city, the whole land which they inhabited, being overwhelmed into total ruin. Some interpreted this verse again about the martyrs who were killed because of their faith and from earthly perspective as if their glory was seized. And the bodies of the martyrs who are the Christ's throne because our heart is the throne of God so when these bodies were thrown to the ground after they were tortured as if the throne of Christ was thrown down to the ground, cast down to the ground. Verse 45, 
The days of his youth you have shortened. You have covered him with shame. Silah. So the main adversity was that though God had promised David that his kingdom would be everlasting, now it appears like the everlasting term that God promised is shortened and reduced to a very limited period. So instead of having everlasting kingdom, now the days of his youth you have shortened. This doesn't mean he died in young age, but means that the youthful energy and the prosperity were very, very short, as it happened with Jehoiakim and Zedekiah. Jehoiakim was either 18 or 8 years old when he came to the throne, and he reigned only for 3 months and 10 days. You shorten the days. And he spent most of his life in exile, in actual confinement, in which he was literally covered with shame. And if you want to apply this verse to the Lord Jesus Christ, you have covered him with shame. As we read in Isaiah 53, verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief. And we had, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Also, the Lord died at young age, 33, but he lives again and he lives forevermore because he rose from the dead and he lives forever and ever. He shall see, as Isaiah said in Isaiah 53 verse 10, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And the word Silah at the end of verse 45, Silah is pause, pause for reflection or meditation. So here Silah, he paused for contemplation, to turn from describing the sorrow of the kingdom into pleading with God from verse 46. So he paused here after he revealed all the thoughts that Satan attacked him with, he revealed all these thoughts. So he paused for contemplation and now he is pleading with God starting from verse 46. How long, Lord, will you hide yourself forever? Will your wrath burn like fire? So the psalmist could not bear the idea that the crisis would last much more. So he poured out his plea to God as if God was hiding and angry with Israel and their king. So he said, how long, how long this present state continue? Will it be to the end until they are totally consumed, totally ruined, totally swept away? Are the promises which have been made never to be fulfilled? Where are your promises? When God hides his face from us, though it is for a moment, a little, but it seems too long, it seems like eternity to us.
So, this is like a petition for a repentant soul seeking reconciliation and peace with God. So the repentant soul says to God, how long you will be angry with me? How long you hide your face from me? I want you to, to be reconciled with me. Then, in verse 47, he said, Remember how short my time is. For what futility have you created all the children of men? So as if he's saying, the time is too short. I'm not going to live for long. If you don't intervene right now, right now, I will be consumed. So the mention of the shortness of time and the futility of life and a sense of urgency, even desperation to the request. As St. James said, our life is a vapor that appears for little time and then vanishes away. And some commentator observed that the question is whether God will continue to hide his face from the Jewish people till the consummation of all things and the whole world completely ends. And again, the verse 47 can be applied to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, what he endured when the Father hid his face from him and the Son said, My Father, my Father, why you have forsaken me? Or my God, my God. Why you have forsaken me? This verse also can be applied to the body of Christ, the church, at the time of suffering and death, martyrdom, when the people, like the apostles during the suffering of Christ, they lost hope of his resurrection. As the two disciples of Ramos were speaking, we hoped that he would save Israel, but now. He has been in the tomb for three days. If God was ever to interpose and bless him, it must be done speedily because the time will pass away very soon. So he's saying, my life is short. Our life is vanity, futile. So you need to intervene immediately right now. And the psalmist prayed that God would remember them. Remember how short my time is. Remember this. For what futility have you created all the ch children of men? Man is indeed made in vain, considering that man is mortal. And if there is no future, if there is no life after death, then we are futile. But God would not make man in vain. That's why there is eternal life, life after this. Lord, remember these loving kindness. In verse 48, what man can live and not see this? Is there any person who will live without dying? Can he deliver his life from the power of grave? Can any man deliver his life from the power of grief, Selah. So the shortness and the misery of this life is clear from the fact that no one can escape this. All of us are frail and short-lived. Wherefore, unless God's mercy be speedy, all will pass away without beholding the desire of their heart. All men must see death. 
even the Lord Jesus Christ died, he tasted death. And the constant tradition of the church regarding Elijah and Enoch who ascended alive to heaven, they will reappear and, and die during the time of the Antichrist. And no one can deliver his own life from the grave and the power of death. Can he deliver his life from the power of the grave? The only exception was the Lord Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ had the power over death and life. So he had the power to deliver his life from the power of grief. And he rose on the third day. Jesus promised to raise his own body after three days in the grave. Another sila here for contemplation, pause for contemplation, because men often wish to forget their complete dependence upon God regarding the life to come. So the psalmist urged us here to remember it often to, and emphasizing it with the word sila. Remember, all of us we will die and we rely on God in the life after death. So after a pause for contemplation, the psalm resumes his prayer. In verse 49, Lord, where are your former loving kindnesses, which you have swore to David in your truth? So he returns to the thoughts of God's loving kindness and faithfulness. From which he started in verse 1, as I told you, I will sing about the mercies of the Lord. So the request shows that he would not allow himself to stay in the belief that God has cast them off or renounced his covenant. As I told you, this was a warfare from Satan. So now he is praying for the loving kindness of God. He wonders where are these promises which God made formerly to David. And I want you to notice he said, which you swore to David in your truth, in your truth. So the psalmist trusts God's promises, but he asks, how will they take place? I know you are faithful. I know your promises are true, but how your promises will be fulfilled? Verse 50, remember, Lord, the reproach of your servant. How I bear in my bosom the reproach of all the many peoples. Remember the reproach under which all the people of God lie so long as their enemies are allowed to plunder and oppress them in their pleasure. And that some desired that all this might be before the mind of God as a reason why he should help him. If you remember our reproach, definitely you will come to help us. These promises has been made to David and his people. But this reproach was consequent of what seemed to be failure to fulfill the promises of God. So as if he's saying, when you did not fulfill your promises, we are reproaching. Come and fulfill your promises. So the psalmist prays that God would allow it to come before him. The reproach is to come before him, so he will intervene to deliver them. And I like what he said here, how I bear in my bosom 
the reproach of all the many peoples. The meaning is that everything pertaining to the people came on me. It crushed me down. As a leader of the people, he feels the suffering of the people. The burdens of his own people, the reproaches of his own people came as if they came upon him personally. And he felt that he is not able to bear it. This wounded his soul. And he cannot bear to hear God's name blasphemed among the nations. They say, we conquered the people of God. This actually hurt him. Verse 51, the reproaches with which your enemies have reproached, O Lord, with which they have reproached the footsteps of your anointed. So Ethan asked God to notice their low and despised state and to act mercifully in the light of the seeming triumph of the enemies of God. Because the enemies of the king, the anointed of God, are the enemies of God himself. But what did he mean by the footsteps of your anointed? They have reproached the footsteps of your anointed. Your anointed here is the Messiah. And we apply this to Christ. They reproached the Jews with his footsteps. Meaning, they said, where is your Messiah is coming? We waited for 5,000 years. Where is his promise that he made to Adam and to Eve that the offspring of the woman will crush the head of the serpent? Because he delayed or he did not come as soon as expected, the scoffers reproached the Jewish people as we read in Malachi chapter 2 verse 17. But again this will happen when the second coming of Christ will be delayed. Until now people say Christ promised his coming again. What's the time of his coming? When he is coming? As we read in 2nd Peter chapter 3 verses 3 and 4 the scoffers of the last day do the same by reproach the footsteps of your anointed when they say where is the promise of his coming for since the father fell asleep all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation other commentators said the footsteps of the anointed is the heel of the Christ and the serpent, as the Lord said to Eve, the serpent bruised the heel of the seed of the woman. So this reproach that come on the people of Israel because we are the body of Christ. So this reproaches is what the serpent actually bruises the heel of the seed of the woman, the heel of Christ. Also, the footsteps of your anointed can refer to the suffering of Christ's followers. We, the church, who walk in the footsteps of Christ and who are reproached because of the name of Christ. Then the last verse is a conclusion 
Blessed be the Lord forevermore. Amen and Amen. So the conclusion of this psalm clearly shows that the psalmist understood the promise made to David was sure and certain. Even if it seems right now like God abandoning them, but it will be accomplished in the proper time. Therefore, he concluded by saying, Blessed be the Lord forevermore. Amen and Amen. With this sexology, actually, he ended the third book of the psalm. The psalms were divided into the 151 psalms were divided into four books. Psalm 89 conclude the third book of the psalms. Praise to God always. So St. John Chrysostom was accustomed to say this word, praise to God always. Even when he was driven out uh, as an exile and wanderer, he said, blessed be God for everything. The passage here denotes entire acquiescence in God, meaning perfect confidence in Him. I believe that God is right, God is faithful, God is true. The psalmist invited the people, amen and amen, of God to join him in his confident declaration of praise by saying, say amen and amen. May praise and thanks be always given to God, for he does everything well. He is just in all his words and holy in all his acts. This actually concludes Psalm 89. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.